Our scripture text this morning is the book of Acts, chapter 2, uh, verses 1 to 13. It's the conclusion of our study of the last days of Jesus' life as told in the, in the Gospel of Luke and today culminating uh, in the, the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost in, uh, in Acts chapter 2. And there's a lot to, there's a lot to talk about here. But, but first, let's read Acts chapter 2, 1 to 13. If you want to follow along in the, the blue Bibles that are in the chair racks, then you can go to page 1157. That's where Acts 2 uh, is. And I'll ask you to stand as I read. And when I'm done, I'm going to make the declaration that this is the word of the Lord. And invite you to respond with thanksgiving by saying, thanks be to God. Acts chapter 2, starting at verse 1. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. And it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians, Medes... Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others mocked, saying, they are filled with new wine. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Now, there are, um, there are a lot of potential roads you could go down looking at this passage uh, we just read. There's been a lot that has been talked about related to just these 13 verses in the history of the church. A lot of discussion, even confusion sometimes about who the Holy Spirit is. A lot of different views on what actually happened here in Jerusalem on this day. All the, the wind and the flames and the tongues and all that kind of stuff. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to touch on most of that. And so it may, it may start off feeling a little bit more like a Sunday school lesson as we kind of go, go through this, but I think it's really important, not because I'm trying to get bogged down in the theological nuances of things, but ultimately it is extremely helpful and extremely practical to rightly understand what it means when we say that Christians are filled with the Holy Spirit and what difference that makes as we try to live as God wants us to, to live in the, in the world that we, uh, that we are given. Now, so it may start out feeling like a, a Sunday school lesson. Hopefully, hopefully by the end, it transforms into a, into a sermon. Pray with me that that is the case. I want to look at it like this in three basic sections. You've got the Spirit comes. That's what actually happens here, the Spirit coming. You have the people reacting. That's point number two, what the reaction was then. And then the mission ahead. What did it mean for the disciples about what was to happen next? What does it mean for us even about how we... Uh, how we do the work of the church today, right? So the Spirit comes, the people react, and the mission ahead. Now let's start with the Spirit comes. And, and here's where, we're, where we will encounter most of the potential uh, theological discussions and differences among, among Christians. But I think we can work through them and hopefully clear up a little confusion as we go. Let's start with Pentecost 
itself. Christians today tend to hear that word Pentecost and they think that it's exclusively a name for this event, for the the coming of the Holy Spirit on the disciples. That's what Pentecost was. That's when it started. That's where the name came from. But it wasn't. It It had been around for thousands of years. Pentecost was a Jewish feast day, one of the major feasts of the Jewish calendar. It was kind of a kind of a Jewish Thanksgiving celebration. And and, and our agricultural festival that was commanded in the Law of Moses, you can see in the book of Leviticus, where it was specifically commanded of the people to celebrate this on an annual basis, and it was to be done to commemorate the beginning of the wheat harvest. And it began on the 50th day after the first Sunday that followed Passover. The 50th day after the first Sunday. Uh, Sunday that followed the Passover. Now, for that reason, it was frequently referred to as, and if you go back in Leviticus, you'll see this name, it was referred to as the Feast of Weeks. Because a week is how many days? Seven, right? right? And, a, and a week of weeks, right, would be what? Se- kids, seven times seven, quick? 49, right? Right, 49. So, so 49 days. So Sunday after Passover, wait 49 days, and then on the 50th day, Feast of Weeks, right? So why call it Pentecost? Well, okay, see, right, Pentagon. How many sides in a, how many sides in a Pentagon? Five, right? Five sides in a Pentagon. So the, the prefix penta means five. So Pentecost means 50th, and we're back to the Feast of Weeks. That's where you get the name. Now, interestingly, because of the timing of the Feast of Weeks, 50 days after the Passover, by the time we get to the first century and the, and the Jewish celebration of it then, it was still a commemoration of the, of the, of the beginning of the wheat harvest and a, a celebration of thanksgiving, but it also grown to include a celebration of the giving of the law to Moses on Mount Sinai. Now, that's probably not, probably not a wrong uh, conclusion, probably not a wrong thing to do. It was reasonable timing based on Exodus 19 to think that the law was given to Moses about 50 days after the very first Passover when God brought the people out of slavery in Egypt. So it wasn't wrong to celebrate along with Thanksgiving and the, and the beginning of the wheat harvest, the celebration of God giving his law to the people of Israel at Mount Sinai. That's the Feast of Pentecost. That's what was happening in Jerusalem. And that's when all the disciples were gathered all together. Presumably we're talking about the 120 of them that are referred to in Acts chapter 1. They're there and they're waiting. They're waiting because that's what Jesus told them to do. When he ascended into heaven 10 days earlier, that's what he told them to do. He said, wait. And then suddenly, as they're waiting on this, this, the, the beginning of the celebration of Pentecost, something happens to these disciples. And we know that it's the arrival of the Holy Spirit. Jesus had told them that this is what they were waiting for. I'm going to send, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit. And there's several things that happened as the Holy Spirit comes. And I want to look quickly at each of them because they do tell us something about the Holy Spirit in what we see here. But first, we have, as the Holy Spirit comes, this sound like a mighty rushing wind. Now, it's not a, it's not a gentle breeze that they hear. Remember, it's a sound. They don't, feel the, they don't feel the wind. They hear. It sounds like a mighty rushing wind. It's something noticeable. If you grew up in the Midwest, you know that what you're told to listen for Right? When a tornado is in the area is, is what? The sound of, a, of, of like a freight train. Right? That's what the wind sounds like. Even if you live around here. Remember earlier this spring when the tornadoes touched down. We had those bad storms and the tornadoes touched down in Jackson and Howell and Seeger. Right? Right? It sounds different. It sounds more like a scream. When the wind blows like that, you can't ignore it. That's the Holy Spirit. 
It's the breath of God, not a gentle breeze, a powerful wind that you notice, right, that you can't ignore. And it's a little bit obscured by the need to use different words in English for wind and for spirit, but in Greek it's the same word. It's the word pneuma, wind, spirit, it's the same word. And that word spirit, pneuma, it means, it means air in motion, right, breath or wind. Not just air, but air in in motion. And if we take anything from the image that's used of the sound of a mighty rushing wind in Acts 2, it's that this powerful breath makes you take notice. Right? It, is, it is God in motion, God at work. And breath is actually a very helpful way to think of the word, to understand a part of what this means. Because if you go back to the very beginning of the Bible, you begin to see the spirit and breath language intermingled as it refers to God's work, the work of the Holy Spirit, even in the in the Old Testament, for example, Genesis chapter 1, verse 2, where it says at the, at the creation of the world, it begins with the Spirit of God hovering over the face of the waters. God's breath is how he creates and brings something out of nothing. And then specifically in Genesis 2, when God forms Adam from the dust of the earth, it says that God breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. Right? It's the work of the Holy Spirit. Many years later, the, 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 the Jewish prophet Ezekiel was brought by the Spirit of the Lord, it says. It's in Ezekiel 37. He's brought by the Spirit of the Lord into a valley of dry bones, right? Dead bones. And God tells Ezekiel to speak, air in motion, to the bones, to prophesy, he says, not telling about the future, but, but declaring the truth about God. And Ezekiel uses his breath, and God uses his breath, his spirit, to bring new life to these dead bones. Ezekiel 37, 9. Thus says the Lord God, Come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain that they may live. And that's what happened. The Spirit who created life in the first place, all of life, recreated life by the wind and by the breath of the Holy Spirit. Which is why when Jesus was talking in John chapter 3 with one of the religious leaders, Nicodemus, one of the Pharisees, about the necessity of someone being born again, Right, in order to know God. That's why he uses the language of the wind and the spirit to describe what he's talking about. When he says the wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, so it is, Jesus told Nicodemus, so it is with everyone who is born of the spirit. Right? That's what the rushing wind sound is all about. The Holy Spirit is the, the breath of God, the power of God to bring about new life. It takes the dead, it makes them alive. And when that happens, it's noticeable. You hear the difference. That's the first interesting thing we see. Now, the second interesting thing we're given is in verse 3. Divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each of them. Okay, now, fire. Right? What does the image of fire mean in the Bible? Well, fire, too, is, is also used throughout the Old Testament uh, to refer to the presence of God, especially in God's holiness, in his, in his power, but also in his comfort, a reminder that he is there with his people. For example, in Genesis chapter 15, when God makes his covenant with Abraham, that he would be their God, that, they would, that Abraham would, would be the father in, uh, of many nations and that Abraham would be his, be his people, right? He does this with this elaborate ancient contract signing ceremony where he appears in the midst of the ceremony as, as what? A fire pot and a flaming torch. That's how God's presence appears. When God first appeared to Moses, said, Moses, you're going to be the one that are going to bring, that's going to bring my people out of Egypt. How does he appear to Moses? In a bush that was burning, appears to him in the fire. 
Right? When God led the people out of Egypt in Exodus chapter 13 and then throughout the wilderness in the years that follow, what's the comforting reminder of God's presence that's displayed during the night? Pillar of fire. Same thing in the tabernacle, which was the mobile, mobile place of worship of, for Israel before the temple was built. Right? God's presence was a cloud by day and a fire by night. When the tabernacle was built, God's presence came down in a pillar of fire. And the fire, fire does, I mean, if you just think about fire more generally, it does, it does a couple of things to, to help us. Two main things that are of, of, of main assistance to humanity. I mean, we have, we have electricity, we have modern furnaces today, we don't think about it as much. But for the entirety of human history, up to about like almost yesterday, when you think about it in the entirety of human history, up to just about like 100 years ago or so, right, you were desperately in need of two things that fire provided, particularly at night, light and heat, light and warmth. Now, the other thing that fire does and has been used throughout history as well, and we see biblical uses of this image as well, is as a means of refining, a means of purifying. It burns away the impurities, right? And that's what the Holy Spirit does. That's why this image makes sense, and hence the continued use of the image of a tongue of fire, a flame of, of fire, when God's presence comes down. This is the presence of God with his people to comfort, to protect, and to purify them. Now, there is one crucial difference here, that is worth pointing out from the Old Testament presence of God that was signaled by fire and what's happening now. These tongues of fire, note, are not singular. It's not one big flame, not one big pillar that comes down. They're divided tongues. You see that word there? It's not one big flame. It's the presence of God now with each Christian. Every follower of Jesus, now a temple, a house for the Holy Spirit, like Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6. So we have the sound of a rushing wind, God in motion. We have the visual tongues of fire, God's comforting, protecting, and purifying presence with his people. And they both accompany what verse 4 calls the filling of the Holy Spirit. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, it says. Now what does that mean? Well, it doesn't mean that the Holy Spirit wasn't active in the history of God's people up to this point. Right? We've already established that a little bit. We see the work of the Holy Spirit throughout the pages of, uh, of the Old Testament, starting with creation itself. It also doesn't mean that the work of the Holy Spirit before the death and the resurrection of Jesus wasn't still the reason why people in ancient Israel put their faith in the promises of, of God. No, the Old Testament Israelites were saved through faith in a future Messiah. They still had to trust in God's promises to provide for their sins. They were looking forward to a Messiah and the only one who could bring about that faith, who could transform dead hearts into living hearts, was God working through his Holy Spirit. So that still happened and there are Old Testament examples of the Spirit of God coming on individuals for particular tasks. We see that with Samson. We see it even with King Saul. But what is absent in the Old Testament that is now different, that is now new now, that is now solidified at at Pentecost is the indwelling, the filling of the Holy Spirit in the heart of every believer that now testifies in a way that would not have been possible before to the fully revealed person of Jesus Christ and his now completed life, death, resurrection, and ascension. That would not have been understood. It could not have been the case in the Old Testament. In other words, the presence of Jesus with his disciples both in his earthly life and even in the days after his resurrection, was so great. The reason why the, the presence of Jesus with the people was so great when he was physically here was because he was able to explain to them how everything all fits together. 
showed them how all their longings, all their needs, all their problems are all met and solved in this life through the death and the resurrection and ascension of Jesus in his life. But Jesus said that it would be even better when he's gone and the Holy Spirit comes now that Jesus is ascended because God's presence, now not just physical with Jesus, could now be continually reminding him of those, the, uh, the people of those things. The presence of the Holy Spirit now comes and is an ongoing, ever-happening testimony of the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus that fits in each of our hearts a perspective and an understanding that solves our problems and gives the answers to our deepest longings. That's what is happening here. And that Holy Spirit will continue to minister to them, these disciples, and to us that truth about what Jesus has done all the time in each of our hearts. Now, there's a lot more that can be talked about, even debated there but but maybe you know, maybe ask me a question maybe i'll do a left on the desk video or something this week with something that you feel was unanswered there but we need to move on to the reaction right the spirit comes that was point number one that's what happened now the people react and obviously right the 120 disciples who were initially filled with the holy spirit were nearby to the temple courts they were in a room right but but they must have been close somewhere to the temple courts because it seems as if then they spill out into this larger area and the crowds notice that something has happened. Right? There, there are these this descriptive words that are spread from verse 5 to verse 13. The people were bewildered, it says in verse 6. They were amazed and astonished, it says in verse 7. Again in verse 12, they were amazed and perplexed. I don't know, how many different ways can you say it? Right? The people did not understand what, exactly what was going on, but they did see something was going on. Right? Well, I mean, first you have this tongues thing. The fact that the Holy Spirit fills the disciples and they begin to speak in other languages. That's what it means when it refers to they spoke in, 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 in different tongues that people could understand. And whatever, whatever you might think or whatever some might think about what happens in modern-day charismatic or Pentecostal churches where where people claim to speak in some kind of unknown heavenly language. That's really more a debate about texts that happen later in the book of Acts or in 1 Corinthians. Here, it's pretty clear that what's talking about is a miracle of speaking where these Galileans, their accent was obviously noticeable, were speaking in languages that they did not natively speak and obviously did not know, but were understandable to the hearers. These were actual languages from all the lands that the people were gathering from. And it happens so that they are able to hear, verse 11, the mighty works of God being proclaimed to them in their own language. People from all over the known world. Right? You had the Roman Empire to the the north and to the west. You had the Parthian empires that are represented in that long list of the nations that are named there. And they're amazed. Now, they're likely amazed for a couple of different reasons. One, they were amazed because they were hearing the mighty works of God, the message of Jesus. That in itself is, a, is amazing, that God had sent this Messiah, this Lord and King, to live a perfect life, to die an atoning death, to rise in a victorious resurrection and ascend and sit on a throne. They were hearing that. That in itself is amazing. But it's obviously also amazing that they are hearing this proclaimed in their own language. Not just Hebrew, not just Greek, not just Latin or Aramaic. They would have been more common, probably more universal. But God was doing something amazing. Thousands of years before, 
thousands of years before Pentecost, God had scattered the people of the earth when they rebelled against him and they thought that they could build a tower that would reach him in their own strength, in their own ingenuity, right? A tower at Babel. And God, at that tower, confused their languages and scattered them across the earth so that they couldn't understand one another. It was a curse of disunity. But the curse here is being reversed. You see? Babel is being redeemed at Pentecost as the Holy Spirit brings people together and unites them through the gift of language. It's absolutely amazing. Now, the other place where we see the amazement and the bewilderment of the crowd is actually in the reaction that some of the mockers have to the disciples who are now filled with the Holy Spirit. It says in verse 13 that the mockers said, they are filled with new wine. Now, this is interesting particularly on a Sunday where we're, ta- where we're talking about and praying for a ministry that helps men and women break free from life-dominating addictions, including addictions to alcohol. And you might ask, you know, the more cynical among you might ask the question, is this kind of saying that being close to the Holy Spirit is like being drunk? I mean, maybe, some of you say, maybe I'm closer to the Holy Spirit than, than I thought. Is that, what this is, is that what this is saying? Well, there must be some kind of sense in which there's a connection between the the two, or else the crowds wouldn't have reacted this way. They wouldn't have made this kind of comment. But there is a contrast as well. The Apostle Paul, actually, a few years later, would write to the Ephesians, and he would make the connection with a contrast. He said, do not get drunk on wine, for that is debauchery. Right? So, okay, so very clear where that is in the minds of the Apostle Paul. Do not get drunk with wine, but be filled, he says, with the Holy Spirit. So connected, but contrasted. Now, I don't have time to go completely down the the rabbit trail. Paul isn't saying that there is a second filling of the Holy Spirit here. That phrase in Ephesians is meant to to give you the sense of continuing to live out the Holy Spirit filling that you received when you were brought to Christ. But the point that he's making is that there is a difference between drunkenness and being filled with the Holy Spirit. Let me see if I can show you the connection and and the contrast. Where does alcohol, what does alcohol do to you when you get drunk? Right, to your attitude to your behavior. Well, there's a sense in which it makes you bolder. It makes you freer with your words, less concerned about your circumstances, less concerned about what other people think. Now, often to very damaging consequences, but that's what, that's what does happen. You become less concerned about your surroundings, less conferned, concerned about what people think. You become bolder. And that must be something to some degree that the crowds noticed among the, the disciples. They were speaking freely about Jesus. They were bolder. It didn't seem to be as concerned with the fact that, uh, you know, that, that the Jewish leaders, that the Romans, that they might not like what they were saying. They didn't, they didn't care. But here's the difference. And on a, and on a Sunday where we noted the passing of, of, uh, of, of Tim Keller, I, I, I'll give a hat tip to him because this is where I learned this from him, right? How does alcohol make you, how does alcohol make you less concerned about your circumstances? How does it make you freer with your with your words? How does it make you less concerned about your surroundings and what people think? How does alcohol do that? Well, it does it by being a depressant. Now, not that it makes you necessarily sad or depressed, but it depresses your awareness of the truth, right? A truth that the drunk presumably wants to be less aware of. (laughs) I want to be less aware of my truth. I want to be less aware of my surroundings. That's why I'm using alcohol, to make me less aware of it. It dulls your sense of reality, It makes you more carefree by blocking out reality. Now, the Holy Spirit does the exact opposite. The Holy Spirit makes you bolder, makes you less concerned about your circumstances, makes you less concerned about what others think, not by decreasing your awareness of your reality, but by increasing your your sense of awareness of your reality. 
by increasing your awareness of truth, a glorious truth of who you are in Jesus Christ, about where you have been placed in the context of human history and what God has done for you, about not dulling you to your circumstances, but seeing how you fit in the midst of those circumstances in the context of God's world. To put simply, alcohol makes you bolder by making you stupid. The Holy Spirit makes you bolder by making you smarter. So the crowds are amazed, and they're perplexed, and they're asking questions. Speaking in different languages does that. The freedom and the boldness of the disciples do that. And it's worth asking, even if you don't speak in different languages that you've never learned. That was clearly a miraculous gift of that moment. It's worth asking as we consider what the people saw when they looked at these disciples. Does anyone look at your life? Do they, does anyone look at your boldness, your contentment, your sense of joy? And are they amazed, perplexed, astonished? That was the reaction of the people. Now lastly, the mission ahead. Here's the limitation of stopping at verse 13. Because Peter, if you continue in Acts chapter 2, preaches a classic sermon in the second part of Acts 2 that we're not going to look at. Right, that explains more and tries to answer this amazement, that does give an answer to the people. He doesn't just leave it with like, oh, you're perplexed, that's interesting. No, he gives them an explanation of what's going on and how it fits into what Jesus has, has done. And we're not going to look at it next week. We're going to leave Luke's account of the, of the early church at this point. But we will be looking over the next three weeks at the bigger questions that the crowds were asking. And they were asking each other, it tells us, what does this mean? What does this mean? See, just because we don't get the, the explanation here that Peter preaches uh, later with words, it doesn't mean that the gospel is not here in Acts 2, 1 to 13. And I want to close by doing what I think the Holy Spirit would want us to do. And that is not pay as much to the, attention to the Holy Spirit here as to the Jesus that he points to. Right? This is what I mean. Sinclair Ferguson, who wrote a big thick book on the Holy Spirit, he said once that the Holy Spirit is like a spotlight. He said it dawned on him once as he was driving to a theological lecture and he saw a spotlight shining on a house and he said you know that's a good metaphor for the holy spirit because the role of the holy spirit is like the role of a spotlight the role of a spotlight is not to illuminate itself but to illuminate that on which it shines in the same way the ministry of the holy spirit is not to highlight the holy spirit the ministry of the holy spirit is to highlight the person and the work of jesus christ Jesus said in John 16 that when the Holy Spirit comes, He, the Holy Spirit, will glorify me, that is Jesus, and will take what is mine and declare it to you. And so when the disciples, now full of the Holy Spirit, went out from the temple after Pentecost, as Jesus commanded them, and they went into Jerusalem and Judea and began their ministry to the very ends of the earth, they did it declaring not primarily the message of the Holy Spirit, but illuminated by the Holy Spirit and in the power of the Holy Spirit, they went proclaiming the message of the resurrected Jesus Christ. Their sermons that they preach throughout the rest of the book of Acts are about the death and the resurrection of Jesus and the forgiveness of sin that is available through his work and through his name. Now that's exactly what the Holy Spirit would want us to see. That's exactly what the Holy Spirit would want us to do, right? For the light that that Holy Spirit provides to draw attention not to itself, but to the work of Jesus. And that actually is what was happening at Pentecost. Isn't that interesting? A text that is all about the Holy Spirit is, fittingly enough, still not ultimately pointing us to look at the Holy Spirit as much as it is pointing us to look at the work of Jesus. I want you to see this as we close. 
Because if you want hope in your life, if you want power in your life, this is where it will come from. Not so much from looking at the Holy Spirit, not so much from seeking an experience, but by the work of the Holy Spirit pointing you to what Jesus has already done. This is what I mean. The period of time that we've been looking at since January in this sermon series covers about 57 days in total. From Palm Sunday, when Jesus first entered Jerusalem, through the final days of his ministry, to the celebration of the Passover with his disciples, to his crucifixion, his resurrection, and and his ascension into heaven 40 days later, the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost 10 days after that, 57 days that completely changed all of human history and transformed forever how every human being can understand our relationship with our Creator. And the timing, the the exact timing of this happening on the day of Pentecost, in wind and fire at the Feast of Pentecost, is not a coincidence or an accident or a simple convenience. Because the timing of the Holy Spirit in coming on that day shines a big spotlight on exactly what the Holy Spirit would want you to see. I told you that by the time we got to the first century, the commemoration of Pentecost and the Feast of Weeks was as much about an anniversary celebration of the giving of the law to Moses on Mount Sinai as it was a Thanksgiving celebration. So go back to Exodus 19 and Exodus 24 where Moses goes up to the mountain to meet with God and on both occasions it says the Lord descended in fire. But as you go back and as you look at Exodus 19, compare that to Pentecost where you now have Jesus who is the greater Moses, the rescuer of his people from slavery, who ascends to be in the presence of God, not out Mount Sinai, but ascends to be in the presence of God and God now descends in fire. Very similar, but note the difference. When Moses ascended to God and the fire came down on Mount Sinai, what was the reaction of the people? They trembled. They trembled in fear. They weren't even allowed to be near the mountain. They cowered. But when Jesus ascended to God and the fire came down at Pentecost, the people did what? They danced with joy. They were drunk with joy. When the fire of God's presence came down on Mount Sinai, the people weren't actually even allowed to be near it. They couldn't come near the mountain. They couldn't even touch it. But when the fire of God's presence comes down at Pentecost, The presence of God doesn't come far up the mountain somewhere. It comes down on each of the believers. It rests on them. What changed? Between Sinai and Pentecost, what's different? It wasn't God. He wasn't being mean and angry at Sinai and now he's all soft by the time Pentecost comes around. The law of God didn't change. God is just as holy, just as perfect then as he is now. Just as hostile towards sin as he as he was then. What changed? What changed is is that between the fire coming down at Mount Sinai and the fire coming down at Pentecost, the figurative fire of God came down on another occasion. Thousands of years after Moses, about 50 days before Pentecost, Jesus ascended not a mountain but a hill called Calvary and he was lifted up not into a cloud but on a cross and on that cross the fire of God came down in wrath on Jesus. And the reason he was there, the reason he ascended that hill to be raised on that cross was so that he could experience the fire of God's judgment. Fire provides light. Yes, it does. Fire provides warmth. It certainly does. But if it is not respected, fire does something else. It consumes and it destroys. And it is no wonder that the fire of God coming down at Mount Sinai caused the people of God to tremble. 
Because from the Garden of Eden, humanity has not respected the fire of God. And we know we're guilty. So the presence of God doesn't bring comfort then. It brings rightly and understandably, it brings fear. Now let me ask you, do you feel like that? Have you ever felt like that? That God's presence isn't comforting to you because you are acutely aware of your guilt. You can be a drug addict, an alcoholic, a hitman for the mob. And the Holy Spirit wants to introduce you to someone. You might have walked away from God years ago thinking that you could live this life without Him. And now you're afraid to come back until you clean something up in your life. The Holy Spirit wants to introduce you to someone. You might be the victim of someone else's abuse, someone who told you that you'll never be good enough, someone who who made you feel as if no one good, no one kind could ever love someone like you. The Holy Spirit wants to introduce you to someone. You could be going through this life thinking that if you just work hard enough, if you just try a little bit harder, if you just do the right things, then somehow, someday, maybe God will find you acceptable. The Holy Spirit wants you to meet Jesus. He's the one who took the fire of God's judgment so that you can experience the fire of God's warmth. He's the one who took the fear out of the fire so that when you look to Jesus in faith, the very presence of God comes down on you like a beautiful rushing wind. Powerful, yes. Mighty, yes. But might that is now marshaled on your behalf. It comes down and rests on you like tongues of fire. And it equips you to join the disciples in the ministry of the Holy Spirit, a ministry that declares the mighty works of God to a world that so desperately needs that hope. Right here in this community, in our surrounding neighborhoods, and by the power of God's Spirit to the very ends of the earth. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the work that you do in each of our hearts to show us our sin and to bring us to a Savior. Lord, may that Holy Spirit, you, Holy Spirit, work in us a renewed and a continued desire to proclaim what you have done through the work of Jesus Christ. Come, Lord, and breathe life into our souls, maybe for the first time, maybe just renewing our hearts and making us more aware of what you have already done for us. Oh, Lord, may your joy be seen in all that we do, that our sin might be covered, that we might be able to proclaim boldly the message that you've given us. In Jesus' name, amen.